Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. This is the 17th sermon in our series on the pastoral epistles, and it is the second sermon in the book of Titus. So this is the Apostle Paul writing to Titus, who is a pastor on the island of Crete, there as today part of Greece. And Paul is writing, the, the book centers much around some heresy, some false doctrine, some bad ideas that are taking place uh, there in the church that Titus is dealing with. This is much like the book of Galatians. That's Paul's purpose is to refute bad doctrine in the churches of Galatia. And so Paul writes to Titus, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves too much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Holy God, this morning, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is forever settled in heaven. I thank you, Lord, that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. Your word is already anointed. We don't have to pray for that, but we pray that in the next few moments of time that you would open up our understanding, help us to receive revelation and truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. To give you a map this morning of where we are going, we will spend the majority of the time this morning in verse 1 talking about sound doctrine and a little bit of time talking about the practical and ethical implications of how we should behave and what kind of men and women we should be in light of what it means to embrace truth. In chapter 1... So the, the, the first sermon that we preached in Titus 
we just took that first section, really just the greeting was a sermon. And the rest of chapter 1 that we did not read this morning, Paul gives a long list of things that pastors should and should not be. He's calling them elders. Remember in Scripture, elders and pastors, is that word is interchangeable. Uh, and it is always in the plural. The New Testament church does not know what it means um, to have pastors in the singular. It is a plural office. So let me read for you what some of these qualifications are. Or I'm, I'm going to skip down and read. I'll skip the qualifications and then go to what Paul talks about these people who are not living according to the standard. So this is what Paul says. There are many who are insubordinate, this is in chapter 1, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision parties, referring to people who are part of the church that come from Judaism, the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Then Paul says, their testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commandments of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciousnesses are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul is not pulling punches here. Um, he says, your own people have said that these people are gluttons, liars, and evil beasts, and they speak truth. They're detestable, disobedient. Paul's being very direct here about these people. So we read there, now remember in the original writings, there, there are no chapter divisions. And often because we go to chapter 2 or whatever chapter we go to next in our minds, there's a separation of thought. But Paul, he's not writing chapter 2, he's, it's just one continuous writing. We're the, we're the ones later who impose these chapter and verse divisions. So right after he says this, he goes into chapter 2 and says, But as for you, that's them, but as for you, Titus, you teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is the primary role of a pastor elder. Teach biblical truth. Even though 21st century pastors are tasked with running large church organizations, being motivational speakers, leadership gurus, life coaches, I find none of these things in Scripture. I heard a man years ago preaching, and he was in between churches, and he'd become a very well-known evangelist just traveling around. He said, if I ever pastor again, I will hang a sign over my door that says, no counseling spoken here. He said, because I don't think I ever counseled somebody to do something that they ever listened to my advice. Later on, he would end up pastoring a church of at least 500 people, and I often wondered if he, if he kept, that, kept that advice to himself. I don't know. But I understand where he's coming from. Pastors are relegated often to marriage counselors or life coaches. 
you know, see the pastor, get his advice. But I find a biblical model of a pastor that the primary role is to lead and to shepherd according to what is biblical truth. A pastor is a shepherd protecting the flock from wolves and sheep's clothing from within and from without. And much of this is done by teaching sound doctrine. The only way the hearers of God's Word can know for certain that sound doctrine is being taught is if the teacher and the preacher is tethered to the Bible. Because there's all kinds of things being said in pulpits that simply aren't true. And people accept them as truth. How should you, why should you accept anything that I say? Say, well, there is a certain element of trust. Say, yes, um, but you also have Bibles. It's not as though the preacher is preaching from a book that you don't have access to. You have access to go back and look at this and see what it says. I have zero interest in whipping people into a frenzy or making them feel good or making them feel bad. The only thing that I want you to feel is the reality of the truth of the weight that is in Scripture. That is why we do expository preaching, exposing, extracting the meaning from the text. Because I, I want to constantly, on purpose, be pushing our noses into the text saying, see what is really in the Scripture. We're pushing with one hand in the text, pointing to one hand in the text and the other hand pointing to Him. and Saying, see the glory of God that is here in the text. We are in no danger of being too indoctrinated. We could all stand to linger in the presence of God and gaze into His Word and, and learn of Him in ways that help us to know Him rightly. So Carl Truman, it's probably not a name a lot of you are familiar with. I would encourage you um, to engage with him. He's one of my favorite authors. Uh, I, I have said to many people I regard him as the most important voice in the culture, speaking to the culture, coming from a Christian perspective. He's written a lot, talked a lot about, about, the, uh, about the self, about the whole trans movement, about all the things that are going on with this. Truman speaks a lot to this. I don't normally read quotes this long, but I think what Truman writes is, <clears throat> is worthy of hearing. He said, I would, and this is, I, I am jumping in the middle of a, of a much longer article. He said, I would like to suggest that one vital part of the answer is to be found in the most difficult and yet glorious of Christian teachings, the doctrine of God, particularly the doctrine of God as He is in Himself. If patriotism leads individuals to see themselves, and if necessary to sacrifice themselves, in light of a larger, greater reality, that of the nation, so then Christians stand or fall by whether they see the God they worship as truly greater than themselves. A God who is simply man, writ large, is no more worthy of devotion and no more captivating to the imagination than a sports hero or a movie star. Only as our imaginations are taken captive by a vision of God and His glory will we see any change in the wider malaise of modernity which afflicts our religious institutions. I have some personal grounds, he writes, for believing this can be done. 
Each year I teach an undergraduate course on the doctrine of God, and each year I am delightfully surprised by the effect it has on many students. As the course progresses, what is striking to me is that the students come to realize that so much of what passes for Christian teaching and worship in the church today is little more than the concerns of our wider culture expressed in a Christianese idiom. One case in point, which I looked at in detail, is the Lauren Daigle song, You Say, which won the award for Best Contemporary Christian Music Performance Song at the 2019 Grammys. When juxtaposed with the glorious reflections on the mystery of God's being found in Nazianzus, and this is, he's referring to an early church father here, the students see it for what it really is, a song in which God is nothing more than a therapist or a reassuring friend. He is a small God, no more than a boyfriend who is always there and who never says a cross word. And as they see, speaking of his students seeing these things, as they see the contrast between the song you say and the classics of Christian spirituality, they also see that the gospel is not about being affirmed for who we are, but about being transformed by God's grace into that which we should be. Heaven is not personal happiness. It is eternal communion with God the Father through the union with His Son via the work of the Holy Spirit. And the human problem is not that we do not feel psychologically happen. It is morally that we are sinful and existentially that we shall die. That vision is so much greater than the vision of God as a friendly therapist with which our own contemporary cross. Christian culture is so often satisfied. We live in an era in which expressive individualism and the cult of the therapeutic are the very cultural air we breathe. There is nothing we can do to escape that. But we need to remind ourselves that it is a glorious picture of God, that which is dramatically revealed in biblical history and dogmatically articulated by the greatest thinkers of the Christian tradition has led to some of the most compelling doxology of the, churches, of the church through the ages, doxology being our worship. So he says all of this has led, because what, why do we want to believe rightly? We want to believe rightly because it compels us to worship Him. And this is what he's saying. These things have been dogmatically articulated by the greatest thinkers of the Christian tradition, and that has led to some of the most compelling doxology or worship of the church throughout the age. And he closes with this, And that attractive vision, combining as it does the good, the beautiful, and the true, is still compelling. What I am pleading for is that we would be a people who are not swept away in the tide of old heresies packaged in a modern language. That we would not be a people who are ignorant of Scripture when we have Bibles all around us. Now, I've ended Truman's quote there. Um, I'm jumping back in. I'm saying that we would not be swept away in this, all these old heresies that have existed for 2,000 years that come back to us in our own appropriate language. That we would not be a people who are ignorant of what the Bible says when we have Bibles all around us. That we have more resources available to us with the internet to understand Scripture and more resources in general to engage with within our own churches than any group of believers has had for the past 2,000 years. There's no reason to be ignorant. 
I plead for us to be a people who know God rightly in His Word, a people with theological fidelity and a rock-solid understanding of what the Bible has to say. And Paul is telling Titus to teach sound doctrine because false doctrine had crept into the church. Now, there are a lot of doctrines we could mention. Uh, What Paul is refuting in chapter 1 is Jewish believers who were teaching false doctrine. We don't know exactly what they were teaching. I think we have a better idea in Galatians of what they were teaching that Paul was refuting, but I don't think it's quite as clear in Titus Although, if we look in chapter 3, there's only three chapters, it's a short book, it's a short letter. If we look at the last chapter of Titus and what Paul is teaching, I think it gives us an idea of what he is refuting, and we can kind of figure out what the Jews were teaching that was bad ideas, which, ironically, coincidentally, not at all, uh, is the same thing that they were teaching in the churches in Galatia. So let's look in chapter 3, just read verses 4 through 7, and this will be the focus of the sermon when we get to chapter 3, but I want to look at it a little bit here this morning. So Paul says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, here's the key, He's teaching justification by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 7, He justifies us by His grace. When I started preparing this sermon, I had no idea I was going to end up here. 99% of the time when I prepare a sermon, I know exactly where I'm going. I've been thinking about it all week. I've been letting the thoughts percolate in my head, kind of outlining them in my head. So when I sit down, I'm good to go. I had no idea I was going to talk about justification until I got to this point of preparing the sermon. So how many know what Tuesday is? Yes. Tuesday is Reformation Day. It's October 31st. It is the day that we celebrate Martin Luther on October 31st, nailing his 95 theses, which were just 95 kind of bullet points, uh, to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. The tradition says he did this. He might have done it. It's a good story. I don't, know that, I don't think Luther ever actually talks about it, but this is, was the practice and the custom. He certainly did drop them in the mailbox and send them to one of his bishops, who was his boss. Uh, that he most certainly did. Um, it's kind of sidebar, it was technology that allowed those to spread. The Reformation would not have happened like it happened if it had not been for this wonderful invention called the printing press where young people get a hold of Luther's theses and they start translating it and they start making copies of it and distributing it throughout Europe. Um, That was never Luther's intention. He was not trying to start a protest. He was trying to reform the church from within. So it was Martin Luther that famously said, justification is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. 
Justification, put simply, is that the only way a person can be saved is by the righteousness of Jesus Christ being imputed to us upon the basis of saving faith. That was not at all what the church was teaching 500 years ago. The gospel is the basis of our salvation. The gospel is the good news of Jesus and His kingdom. It's the story of His death, His burial, and His triumphant resurrection. Justification is the gospel in action. It's how God redeems sinners. It's how God enacts the gospel in our lives. It's how God saves sinners like us from eternal damnation because we are justly deserving of that punishment. The church has always, since the time of the Apostle Paul, the time of the first century, the church has always had to fight against ideas that corrupt this doctrine. Paul writes a letter that we call the book of Galatians. It was a letter that he wrote to the churches in that region. And the whole of the letter is that Paul is defending justification against those who would try to add something else to it. In their case, in Galatians, it was adherence to the Jewish law. It's what they're dealing with in Acts 15. Yes, Jesus needs to be the basis of your salvation, but you also need to follow the Jewish Old Testament law. That's required for salvation. Paul, it, it's really the only book that, where Paul takes this tone immediately out of the gate. I mean, Paul's just, he's just hitting them hard. It's like, no, we are not going to stand for this. You could sum up Galatians by saying that what Paul teaches is that the gospel plus anything equals another gospel. Justification by faith plus something else equals false gospel. You cannot add to this. And people have been messing with this for 2,000 years. So I, I think it's worth reading because it imports back into Titus what Paul writes in Galatians 2. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. I mean, he can't be any... I mean, Paul at times is hard to understand. The Apostle Peter writes in his letter that Paul writes things that are hard to understand. That's in the Bible. Peter says, yes, some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. Peter admits that. But here, he's, Pete, Paul's not being ambiguous. He is being as clear. This doesn't work. This works. We are justified by faith in Christ. You are not justified by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That doesn't need any unpacking. That is just as plain as it can be. You cannot follow the works of the law. You cannot merit your own salvation. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. So he, he goes on and, and through this, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, Christ died in vain. If that's how you're saved, what Jesus did on the cross, he wasted his time. So what Martin Luther was fighting against was a different system, but it was still the same thing. It was still people who were messing with justification. Paul's dealing 1,500 years before Luther. Paul's dealing with the Jews adding their law. Paul, or, or Martin Luther, is dealing with the church. And it has been said, and I agree, it is really not fair to dub this the Roman Catholic Church that we know today until about this time. Up until this point, they're just simply one church. 
and it has dealt with mass amount of corruption, and it has gotten to a point to where after Luther does his thing, they have what's called the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent is a meeting that lasts 18 years. Obviously, they don't sit in a room for 18 years. There's multiple sessions that happen over an 18-year period of time, and it's in the late mid to late 1500s, and it's out of response to this, this protest that all these church people, like these are all inside people. Martin Luther is a monk in the church. He is an inside man. And all these people are they're, they're breaking away, even though that wasn't the intention. Luther was never trying to break away. They were trying to reform the church from within. But eventually he becomes excommunicated. And his life is at risk. I mean, they, they are going to kill him for this if they can find him. And so the, the Roman Catholic Church, over 18 years as a response, this is what they said about justification. Justification, we affirm, it is accomplished through the sacraments. So the Catholic Church made baptism and communion, and they have more sacraments than this, but they, meant, they made the sacraments to be the means through which you receive the grace of God. You are justified through the sacraments. They taught transubstantiation, which just meant that when you take communion, this is the body that was shed for me, this is the blood that was shed. When you take the bread and the wine, that that literally turns into the body and the blood of Jesus. That, it actually, that the elements turn into, that it has, still has the appearance. This has been now talked about for hundreds of years. Uh, they, they would say, what if you put it under a microscope? Would it be flesh and blood or would it, would it be bread and wine? And the church has said, no, it still retains the appearance of bread and wine. You can tell that by the taste, the texture, but what it is actually, it actually turns into the body and blood of Jesus. When the church separates, there's two leading reformers. There's Luther and Zwingli, and they come together and they have these 15 points that they agree upon. I mean, just bullet point. And they have this one sub-point of whether or not that's true. Does this truly turn into the body and the blood of Jesus? And they could not agree with that. And so they separated. Their camps, their people separated over that one point. And so if you were going to be a Christian in the 16th century, you would be part of the Roman Catholic Church. Or now you would be part of the Lutherans who followed Martin Luther. Or you would be part of Zwingli's camp which they would just refer to as reformed. Those were your only choices. So now you have, all of a sudden you have two groups that split. And of course from there it just keeps dividing over faith traditions and ideas, but that's, that's the beginning of, of the, how the church kind of breaks into pieces. The Catholic Church said that you receive justifying grace at baptism until you commit a mortal sin. It's called a mortal sin because the sin kills the grace that you received at baptism. So what do you do? You need justified again. How do you do that? You do it through penance. So the sacrament of penance was to regain your justification. So in this system, your justification, your being counted righteous in Christ was built upon your sanctification. How pure and holy and godly you lived. Completely backward with what we would teach. So 506 years ago this week, Luther goes, he nails these things to the door of the church. This internal protest, he was this monk devoted to the church. And, but even Luther, when he nails this to the wall, 
to the door of the church, he's not talking about justification. He's not clear on that. We don't know exactly when he really refined his thoughts, but it would be some years later before it's really clear that Luther understands that what we taught as justification it was not quite right. What is Luther protesting 506 years ago this week? He's protesting the selling of indulgences. He's saying that is not biblical, it's not scriptural. Because what's happening? The church is selling these indulgences. So you have what's called the treasury of merit. You think about it as a bank account. This treasury of merit you can buy into because let's say that my dead grandmother is suffering for 10,000 years. She has been assigned 10,000 years into purgatory. Well, I love my grandmother. I don't want to see her suffer for 10,000. Now, she's going to get to heaven, but she's going to get to heaven after suffering 10,000 years because that's the life she led and she's going to burn off all these bad things before she's righteous and holy enough to go into heaven. So I don't want her to suffer for 10,000 years. How do I... How do I get her out of this? Well, the Pope was building St. Peter's Basilica. You can go there today and visit it. It's still there in Vatican City in Rome. The, they're building this, and they need, they need to make money. So it's a fundraiser. So the fundraiser is to sin, and there were others, but a famous one is Tetzel. So Tetzel goes throughout Germany beating his drum. That's not figurative, it's literal. Tetzel literally would go into town beating this drum through the villages of Saxony and say... You know, selling these indulgences. And people would come out of their, their huts and their houses and say, well, yeah, I'll, I'll buy that. And there became a, a saying that said, every time a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. Throw your coin in, get dead grandma out. That is, that is a moneymaker. That is a money. Everybody's donating to that. Why? Because you believe it. And if you believe it, you'll pay it. So there's this, I mean, just absolute corrupt racket. There's the famous stairs and the, there in the, uh, I don't recall what church, but you can still go there today. You can, you can go there today and climb these stairs. The story is that it's the stairs that Jesus climbed in Jerusalem during his crucifixion. I don't think that's likely, but that's what tradition says. So they move these stairs from Jerusalem to Rome, and now, still today, you can go there and you can get on your hands and knees and climb. And this is what people do. They climb and they get out their rosary and, you know, hail Mother Mary full of grace. And they, they, they do this. And Luther does this. Luther does this 500 plus years ago. And the story goes that Luther gets on his, stands up on his hands and knees, gets to the top of the steps and goes, is this really true? This is like 10 years before the before he nails. I mean, Luther is having kind of this long epiphany. Is there really anything to this? And so Luther's protest is like, it's to his boss, some archbishop between him and the Pope saying, this isn't right. Like, these are 95 points, but my, my protest is we cannot be fleecing these poor people because it's not biblical. And what happens when you see something that's not biblical? When you see something that's not biblical, then you start seeing other things that aren't biblical. So it starts with the protest against the selling of indulgences, but it leads him down the path to say, wait a minute, all these ideas about justification, like it's communicated to me at baptism and I lose it and then it's through the penance and now it's these, like none of this can be right. 
So Luther refined his ideas, he studied scripture, and he came to see that Christ's righteousness was the only basis by which we can stand justified, declared innocent of our sins by our great and holy God. It's on the basis of Christ's righteousness. And Luther would later say, justification is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. Thank God for the blood. We sang about this morning, the blood that Jesus shed. Thank God for the blood. The songwriter said, In sin I wandered sore and sad with bleeding heart and aching head, till Jesus came and sweetly said, I'll take your sins away. So much truth in that song. Jesus is the one who does it. The Catholic Church had this idea that the sacraments and, and we believe in communion and the sacrament of, of, of the bread and the wine, but we don't say it's where Christ literally shows up. And, and it's not that the, the preacher or the priest is communicating this grace to you. And the church had it down. It was ex opere operato, by the working of the works. Like, grace is worked by the work that you are doing today. And Luther said, no, it's just simply on the basis of Christ's righteousness. The songwriter would go on to say, Thank God for the blood. Thank God for the blood that washes white as snow. I gave my heart, my life, my all to him who drank the cup of gall to raise the guilty from the fall and take their sins away. Third verse would say, The water, spirit, and the blood agree if we but understood in making sinners pure and good and take their sins away. Justification is how the blood washes us white as snow. We stand in God's courtroom, our hands and our feet are shackled, guilty as sin because of sin, and deserving to hear the verdict from the judge, guilty. 1 John 2 says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. That advocate, he's our defense attorney. The Son of God stands in the courtroom and says, I'll, he steps forward and says, I'll pay the price. I'll take the verdict. I'll take the death sentence. And so he did. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. Read Romans 3. Who was it that killed Jesus? Paul says in Romans 3 it was God. God put him forth to be a propitiation for our sins, the sacrifice. Paul said God made him, who's the him? It's Christ. God made Christ who knew no sin. Christ never sinned. He was sinless. And yet he's the one that was sinless, that was made to know sin on our behalf. Paul said so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. It is the great exchange. I give all my sin to him. He gives me all of His righteousness. It's the greatest transaction in history. So what Paul does is Paul in verse 2, and I, say all, I bring all of that out of verse 1 because I do think that is, and, and I consulted, I, I'm not alone there, I think there is a consensus and a general idea there that that is what Paul has in mind when he says sound doctrine because in chapter 3 he's going to bring this to fruition about what he's teaching and what he's refuting, the idea of justification. That's all in verse 1. 
verse 2 through 5, and I won't take very long to, to unpack this, but just to point some things out, where he talks about older men, you're to be this, older women, we read it, train the younger women, so on. So what is an older man and older woman? What does Paul mean by that phrase? Well, we don't know exactly, but there is a consensus that it's adulthood. It's an age to where you're working and have a family and you take your place in this world. We could say it's being an adult. So he's not necessarily referring to anybody of a specific older age and the life expectancy of people being shorter there. It's not like he's speaking to what senior citizens. He's speaking about adults. So on one hand, I am grateful for someone like Jordan Peterson who has challenged young men to take responsibility for their life and bear the weight of being. Grateful for that. Peterson would say openly that 91% of his online videos are watched by young men. 91%. That's where it has resonated. And I'm grateful for that. Now, Peterson has stepped into the realm of doing entire series on the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus. And uh, I would caution, I would not want especially new believers to listen to Peterson on these matters because Peterson is approaching it from a very different angle. And he regards many of these stories, uh, even getting into Abraham and all this, he regards them as myths. Um, he has said so. And I fully would expect that for someone with his background, where he's coming from, I don't have a problem with that, with him coming at that angle, because I expect it. That's how a lot of people view it. Um, I don't believe that. I hope none of us believe that. Say, no, we think Abraham was a historical person. Uh, so I would just say that maybe Peterson's kind of getting outside of his um, domain of competency. Like, he needs to stay in his lane over here and leave, leave the Bible to, to other people. But on the other hand, I lament the fact that he even has to be someone who speaks to men in a generation. Because Scripture, if we would read Scripture, it's telling us what kind of men we should be and what kind of young men, how they should act. Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. It says the Bible for men says that our minds should be sober. Doesn't have to mean somber, but it does mean sober. You're not drunk on the pleasures of the world. You're not drunk on entertainment. Not defined by the metrics of manhood that the culture sets forth, but we're defined as men by what the Bible says a man is. He says men are to be dignified. This means to be honorable, pertaining to what is worthy of respect. There is an air of dignity that surrounds a man of God that has nothing to do with income level or anything superficial or how they're dressed. It's a result of God's anointing on a man's life that leads that man to exemplify masculine traits in a way that is God-honoring and not toxic. That's what the anointing of manhood, what it means for God to anoint a man to be a man. Women, he says, be reverent in your behavior. This is the only time Paul will use that compound word that we translate as reverent. It's the only time that Paul uses that word, and it has overtones of a woman serving in the temple. It suggests a woman 
behaving in a way that would be appropriate for a priestess serving in the temple. Not slandering, he says. So the word devil comes from the word diablos, which means slander. Like you're never more like Satan than when you're slandering somebody. You're fulfilling his role and his identity. Paul says, now, could we apply all of these things? Is this so gender specific? I think common sense and logic would say no. Men shouldn't slander either. But women should be self-controlled. He gave that to men. But Paul, I'll, I'll leave that to God and Paul. Paul is saying, ladies, your words about other people matter. Not given to much wine. I know the consumption of alcohol is common even in many faith traditions. Um, I don't subscribe or believe this as, as the one that God's called to lead this particular local body. I, I do think that total abstinence from alcohol, I think it's the most God-honoring way that we can address this subject. I'd be glad to take that up offline. And I say that because I know in a lot of faith traditions, um, it's very common to have a beer, a glass of wine. Um, I understand that. I understand that's where it's at. Um, I, um, we, we want to talk about Martin Luther. I mean, Luther was a German. Like, whatever Germany was, like, Luther liked beer. And all of Luther's followers, man, they like beer. Uh, even today. Um, I'll leave that between them and God. All I'll say is that there is a good argument culturally and a better argument biblically for a teetotaler stance. I think it's easy to defend culturally. I think it's easier to defend biblically. All of this right behavior is built upon the rock-solid foundation of verse 1. Sound doctrine. It matters what you believe. Your belief system, and I mean what you truly believe, not what you proclaim, not what are platitudes, not your belief system, what you truly embrace and hold as truth will affect and bleed over into your behavior, your ethics, and your actions. Your sanctification, which is that ongoing process of being more like Jesus, is built upon right thinking and right believing. And so we pray for the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth and to guard our hearts from error. Lord, that, that, that should be our prayer every day. Lord, let your Spirit guard us from error because there's a lot of error out there. There's a lot of error. Now there are, there are boundaries, there are lanes that you can stay in with somebody and say we embrace but we disagree on these things. I could just about guarantee you we all sat around a table today and really spelled out every single thing we believe about God and Scripture. Nobody in this room would find 100% agreement with anybody else in this room, including me. That's okay. But there are, there are lanes, there are ranges within this to say, hey, these are the lanes of what it means to be an Orthodox believer in Christ. And because there is so much out there, Articles, blogs, YouTube, books, so much out there that just plant all these ideas around there. Um, and I'll, uh, maybe I watch a little more of this stuff than I should, but I'll, I'll tend to watch things where people put together YouTube clips of, of really bad ideas and bad preaching. I saw one the other day where 
the preacher said, God came to me in a, basically in a vision or a dream, and the Lord asked him to forgive him. Like God said, forgive me, because he had, like, he had made a, like an error and, and with this other brother. This, other, this man had fallen. He's like, that man was mine. I had, like, forgive me. I'm like, like, I can't believe I'm hearing this. A man saying, the Lord came to me and asked for forgiveness. It's just, now, that's blatant. I think everybody would call that out and go, well, that's just utter nonsense. But it's kind of like the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and name it and claim it, word of faith, all this stuff. Um, it's easy to look at the, um, the extreme examples and go, that's just nonsense. Ironically, Dallas-Fort Worth the last 30 years has kind of been um, a, a seed ground of, of the, these ideas. Some of the most famous and well-known ones came out of here and are still here in this area nationwide. And, and so we encounter these things, you know. Um, lay hands on your television and write me a check for $777 at seed money and, you know, God's going to make you wealthy and heal you. And that's not even like paraphrasing. I mean, those, you know, you're poor because of this and because you don't give. And I um, mean, it's just, it's absolute evil. So it's easy to see those things. Like, well, they, most people would see that for what it is. The people that they're fleecing, I feel sorry for because they don't, that's all they know. And they're desperate. They're like, those people that are writing checks to those men are no different than the people in the villages of Saxony in the 16th century who were giving Tetzel money for their dead relatives. It's the same thing. They're hungry. So it's easy. But what we have to watch for is the, the, the subtleties of those ideas that creep up in our, in our circles to say, no, we are going to defend truth and believe in sound doctrine. Amen. Let's pray. God, you have given us a book that is like no other book. These books collected together Old and New Testament preserved so many women and men and children that have died and shed their blood in defense of this truth, of this book. And unlike any other book, this book is without error. We can interpret it incorrectly. We can pull bad ideas, but the book itself, the writings, they are God-breathed. They are forever settled in heaven. And we thank you for that. We would know very little about who you are if it were not for our scriptures. So Lord, while the Bible is not a relic, it's not something that we worship, but we do regard the words as truth and we regard them as your truth. And we regard this as the very word of God. So, Lord, we pray that you would grant us a, a greater love for your word so that we may, in turn, love you in greater ways and greater depths, that we would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, know you rightly and truly, that we could stand back and, and see you in all of your glory and all of your might, that we could see you for who you really are. Lord, we don't want to see you as a small God, we don't want to see you just as a friend or another hero or a therapist. We want to see you as the great and eternal 
reality and truth of this universe of our lives, that all things come into submission to you, that our lives really have one purpose, and that is to make your name great in these few short years that we have here on this earth. So, Lord, I ask you that you would keep your hand upon us, that you would lead us and guide us into all truth, Lord, that you would guard our hearts from error, and that this week as we go forth, Lord, that we would proclaim your name, honor you in our lives, and live lives that would be counted as worship unto a holy God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In dismissal this morning, can we lift our hands together? Just thank him for who he is. Jesus, thank you today for your might and your glory and your power, your splendor, your majesty, your glory. Lord, take the blinders off of our eyes, Lord, so that we can see you high and lifted up. We worship you this morning. We we bow in your presence. We give you the thanks and the glory and the honor that is due to your great name. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed this morning.